Today we're here with Dr. Sherrod Coley, and he's our special guest to speak about the underserved and social determinants of health. So, Dr. Coley, why don't you introduce yourself first and tell us who you are and why you're an expert in this field. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Sherrod Coley. I'm a family physician. Uh, I work at a community health center in Austin, Texas called People's Community Clinic. Uh, I've spent my entire career working in underserved settings, primarily federally, uh, FQHCs, F the federally qualified health centers. Uh, and uh, I'm a founding board member of the organization Integrated Medicine for the Underserved. Uh, I also serve as the vice chair uh, on the Integrative Health Policy Consortium, which is looking at uh, how we can um, you know, sort of expand integrative health on a, a federal and state level uh, to make basically um, uh, create some policy changes to, to make this more accessible to everyone. Great. And the number one question we get from clinicians is, how can I better serve underserved patients? We have a lot of mm -hmm. mission-driven clinicians yeah. in our organization, and they want to know that. And the, the trend now is that more and more clinicians are employed rather than self-employed. Mm -hmm. So they're part of a big system. So we hear this question a lot. I'm part of a big system. How can I make an impact on the underserved? Mm -hmm. So to reach the answer to that question, could you help us understand a bit of the difference between the social determinants of health and the social needs of health as a way of helping right. our clinicians? Yeah, of course. And I think there's actually like three levels that people can be working on. I think there's the, the individual level with the patient who's in front of you in a clinic where you're sort of you're using your functional medicine principles specifically looking at their diet and looking at uh, their sleep and all these other patterns and, and working on like building resiliency within patients. Uh, but then you have to really understand the, the factors where uh, that, the, in the conditions that people live in to really be able to say, are we going to be able to change some of these uh, things? Like, for instance, if people are coming in and don't have access to healthy foods, then, you know, it's going to be hard to change their diet. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes these are confused. These are actually addressing social needs that patients have, which is sometimes confused with this co concept of social determinants of health. So, so we, we know that social determinants of health are things that impact, like, are, are the conditions that people live in and, and where they live and how that impacts their health. And so, you know, the, 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 the adage is that, uh, you, you know, your zip code is more important than your genetic code in terms of your health. And so, so um, when, what's really important is to look at uh, a couple of different factors. So when we're looking at patients who come into our clinic, um, you know, a lot of them have issues with transportation, housing, food insecurity. So we've actually been able to connect patients to resources that are able to kind of provide them with food stamps uh, or get them connected to uh, organizations that can uh, provide them, you know, with stable housing. Um, you know, so, so these are actually addressing social needs. But th those needs exist because of larger structural issues that, that um, uh, are at play. So there are uh, policies that have been uh, written over the years that essentially lead to these conditions. I mean, and these policies are, are based on, uh, often based on, uh, often affect primarily communities of color uh, or, um, you know, underserved. Uh, populations basically, uh, you know, and, and they can, you know, because of either racism, discrimination, poverty, these things are, are larger factors. To be able to address these issues, though, we actually have to move into the realm of policy. And so that could be policy on a local level. So an example of that would be, uh, for instance, with our clinic, um, we uh, were finding that, that the fact that people don't have the ability to get paid sick leave is actually a public health issue, right? So, so patients 
uh, are, uh, you know, who, who aren't able to take time off from work from being sick, then go into work, they get other people sick. Uh, you know, they, they, if they end up taking time off from work, they, they lose income. And so our clinic uh, was able to kind of work on a, uh, on a level advocating within our communities with our city council to pass a paid sick leave ordinance uh, within the city of Austin as well. So, so I think there are different levels you can work on. There's the individual level, there's the, the social needs that need to be addressed, which are maybe getting people access to food, housing, et cetera. But then sometimes working on the policies that actually can uh, allow people to, to live healthier lives as well. If I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like there's, quote, activism, unquote, to be done at the level of the doctor-patient mm -hmm. relationship, the doctor-community mm -hmm. partnership, yeah. and the doctor-policy partnership, should one choose to. So yeah. uh, how can I get involved? How can I have an impact? Might be on the individual level, the community level, or the policy level. Yes, exactly. And I think advocacy for your patients is a really important piece of that. Yeah, because I think that uh, you know, oftentimes the patients that we see in underserved settings don't have a voice. I mean, these are people who are who, who are communities that have been marginalized for many, many years, and uh, and people may not be equipped to be able to to advocate for themselves in those communities. But uh, it's, it's it's you know, we, we always have to remember that the the power of a vo our our voices in telling our patients' stories. So going. In, to your city council, going to your legislature, going and talking to your representative and actually explaining the stories of our patients uh, is actually one of those things that, that uh, has significant impact. And I think it's important to be able to, to, to do that for them. The power of stories. Mm -hmm. The Always. stories. Very right. important. Yeah. That's a fundamental yeah. tenet of functional medicine. Right. If we take two of those three types of activism that a, a clinician could take at the individual level and at the community level, our clinicians might say, how can I uh, provide authentic uh, assistance if I haven't lived the experience, if I don't live yeah. in that community? Yeah. What would you say to that clinician? Well, I think I think that's a really great question because I mean I mean and 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 it speaks to oftentimes our implicit biases that we have. I mean, we often sort of have an idea when and we're and you know in a visit we we may have fifteen minutes in a visit and a patient comes in and. We use our biases to help determine what's what's going on clinically, oftentimes, right? Uh, because you know, if you have you have to kind of based on what you've seen in the past, come come down to a diagnosis in a really quick amount of time. But those things can definitely work against us because we may we really don't truly know that lived experience. I think the advantage of something a concept like functional medicine is that like you are spending you should be able to spend more time listening to your patients and being able to understand all the different aspects of their health and and how that works and so so you may be asking questions about their sleep and their stress and all that but it's going deeper and asking like you know what kind of environment do you live in uh, what, what what you know what's what was your what was your childhood like uh, things that might get into some deeper uh, you know, sort of issues around trauma or um, around, you know, the, 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 the overall social determinants and what people live in. And so definitely the first thing I would say is just, just listening. And that's a really important piece to it. And then coming from a perspective of um, what's called structural competency, you know, we, there's this, this movement uh, away from just looking at cultural competency where it's looking at understanding what other cultures uh, uh, do in terms of how they eat or, uh, you know, their, their uh, you know, different different aspects of the culture, 
to really understand that a lot of times there are larger structural factors that play a role in this. So, so, so communities that may be in poverty, it's not that they don't want to eat well or that they don't want to exercise, but there may not be safe, road, safe, safe places to exercise. There may not be healthy foods in those particular communities, and those may be because of uh, policy issues and structural factors that have been at play for 50, 60, 400 years. And so um, as a result, like we just have to be aware of these structural issues at play. We also need to be aware of our biases that sometimes come into play and, and kind of think about all of these factors uh, when, when uh, like working with a patient. And I think a lot of that, again, comes down to like just being aware of those things and then listening to the patient and their stories and really asking questions and then being able to kind of put it all together in some ways. So we know there's emerging research that the patient's relationship with their physician has a profound impact mm -hmm. on outcomes. Yeah. Can be more profound than the effect of the medication or the, the intervention, the therapy. So if that partnership, the therapeutic partnership is the language we would use in functional medicine, is affected by a clinician's biases, mm -hmm. what are the practical steps that I can take as a clinician to become aware of my biases, to do something about them, to actually impact outcomes? And yeah. also, in addition to that, is there an emerging body of research on this kind of work on biases and outcomes? There is emerging research on it, actually. Uh, I believe there's an implicit bias test that you can even take that I think Harvard, I can't remember exactly the, uh, the website for it, but, but I, I believe it came out of Harvard, and it's, it, it, it allows you to kind of go on, and, and you know, they have different images that come up, and it allows you to determine your implicit bias. Uh, and although the data from that, my understanding is that it didn't actually show that it changed people's behavior necessarily when they, once they knew their biases. So, so there's some conflicting data around it. But at the same time, I think that's the first step is just being aware of what your biases may be. And, and the first step is like understanding that there are such things as implicit that. I mean, a lot of people weren't, aren't even aware of that concept. And so, um, so I think that's, that's the first step is just, just being aware of that. I think then um, also, not just individually, but also looking at like other things that your your clinic does that may uh, be biased against certain populations in terms of you know like are you are you uh, offering things in different languages or if you have patients who come from uh, you know another culture who maybe English is not their first language or you know are there are there like literacy levels of your handouts things like that and so. So starting to look not just individually but uh, at your biases, but also like a little more structurally at your clinic structure. Like, are there other things that we can do that might make patients feel more comfortable coming in? So, who who would be the best? Uh, cons let's use the word consultant. Who would mm -hmm. be the best consultant for an office practice to work with to understand whether or not there were some structural issues in their office setup hmm. that created. Uh, obstacles to, to the best care or to unbiased yeah, care? That's a good question. I actually don't know if who would be a good consultant. Would the that. patients themselves be? I mean, I think, I think that, that's something to consider. I mean, there are things like, for instance, at our clinic, we have something called a Youth Advisory Council. Uh, and so we have an adolescent medicine department that I work in a couple of days a week. And uh, this Youth Advisory Council essentially uh, is there to kind of like talk about how they would like to see, like what, what I mean, they helped us figure out like what artwork they wanted to see on the wall that made them feel more comfortable or what kind of resources they wanted within the clinic. And so uh, there are definitely, there's definitely a movement to having patient advisory councils in a lot of clinics, uh, which, which basically, you know, meets on a regular basis to kind of 
uh, come up with some ideas around, uh, you know, what, I mean, basically, what are the needs and how do we address those needs? And so those are things that, and there actually is, there's a patient advisory council toolkit through, I believe it's the Colorado Primary Care Association has one. And so that would be um, a place to kind of look and see. I mean, it's geared a little more towards federally qualified health centers, but it's probably something that, that you know, people could still get some benefit from, from taking a look at. Okay. Uh, in motivational interviewing mm -hmm. and in coaching, uh, we, we tend to teach a, a cultural and customs agnostic way of doing that. Mm -hmm. But cultural customs could also uh, affect outcomes if the clinician is not aware of them or mm -hmm. if some of the advice they're giving or uh, the motivation they're trying to, to impart is, is not in line with the cultural customs. How can a clinician uh, become more aware of cultural customs or maybe share some of your experiences of what you've done or seen to be mm -hmm. effective for clinicians to become more aware yeah. to, to well, hit the target? I, I think a lot of it is, again, one, being aware of your implicit biases to, to some extent, but then two, also the listening piece. Just I mean, part of motivational interviewing isn't us providing our input in what patients should do. It's, it's listening to them and finding out what is it that they've tried that's been successful in the past and seeing if they're able to sort of incorporate that into their, their current situation or really just kind of looking at their own motivation and where they're at. And so part of it is just like, like leaving space for that patient to really have those thoughts and have that conversation and, and really just, just sitting and listening. Uh, I think that plays a, a huge role in it. I think if we go into it saying, uh, oh, well, you need to eat kale and you need to do this, like, like patients aren't going to necessarily feel like that's, I mean, some patients may be like, I don't, I don't even know what kale is, you know. So, so like, I think a lot of it is just like, you know, like, I mean, and I think this is one of the main principles of motivational interviewing is letting the patients kind of come to those decisions of what they need to be doing themselves based on what they've experienced and uh, what sort of um, things have worked for them in the past, even so, okay. or might work for them in the future, based on what they know. Now, health literacy mm -hmm. is another issue, uh, very important throughout medicine, but especially with underserved populations mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. What can a clinician do, or what are some resources that are very practical mm -hmm. for a clinician to educate themselves about health literacy, so yeah. that messages can be aligned and hit the target. Are you, are you specifically asking about like what resources can be provided to patients from clinicians around health literacy? Uh, that, that, like, that and, health literacy? and for a clinician to develop skills around health literacy to, mm -hmm. to communicate more effectively. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that, my, my, I'm trying to remember, but I believe the, the Office of Minority Health has some resources around health literacy. Um, you know, and I think that's something that I'd have to I'd have to go back and look at that. That's something to consider. But uh, but I think that in terms of uh, you know when you when you're thinking about you know how to uh, you know work with patients, you have to like make sure that your handouts are uh, at, at a, a, a appropriate reading level for patients, and even think that some patients may not even read. So you I mean asking those questions about like you know are you able. Uh, to, what, what, what sort of uh, resources would be useful for you? I mean, I, I always tend to sort of, um, I try not to use medical terms as much as possible when I'm talking with patients. I mean, I try to just have a conversation with sometimes you do, or you have to at least explain those really well. But the resources that we use um, tend to have a lot of pictures. 
generally, you look at things that are work like at a third grade literacy level. Um, you know, we, we, uh, in our clinic, we have a large Spanish-speaking population, so we have all our resources in English and Spanish. Um, you know, I, I, um, we, we try to sort of create our own resources, but there are also some really good resources out there. Um, in fact, the Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency Program um, has like a, a listing of all these uh, great integrative medicine resources, uh, low literacy resources in English and Spanish. So I use those all the time with my patients. But I think in, in, in general, a lot of it is just sort of, it's, it's really knowing where your patient's at and, understand, and trying to get a feel for um, what they uh, you know, are, are able to sort of understand and uh, you know, like be able to communicate in a way that's effective and make sure that they're asking uh, questions. There's the teach back technique as well, where you know, if you are explaining something, have them teach it back to you to make sure that that you know that like they, they understood what you're saying. So there, there are definitely little, little th the communication things that you can do to sort of uh, make sure that the, the message is getting across. Okay, you've, you've really brought forward some wonderful resources. Are there any other low-hanging fruit in terms of resources for a clinician who really wants to understand their own biases, uh, assist with health literacy, get their staff more aware of uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the um, customs of their, their population, any, any of those other uh, issues that you would say here here are some real can't miss resources that are yeah, easy to access. I would have to I would have to try to try to dig around and find those. I can't think of them off the top of my head. I mean, the other thing that you know that's important, I think, uh, when we're thinking about uh, working with with patients is that you know the other things like you know in in our clinic and in most of the clinics I've worked at, a lot of our staff come from the communities that we serve, and so I think that's a really important piece of it because you. Uh, the, those those staff members really understand the community, are able to, you know, if there is a language barrier, they're able to translate, uh, they're able to kind of really uh, think about it. And if you incorporate them into your, your meetings around determining like what your uh, kind of resources you want to provide, they can actually provide some really valuable input as well. So really thinking about, about like utilizing your staff, that if, especially if they come from those, those communities that you're serving. This year's IFM Annual International Conference focuses on pain, stress, and addiction. Mm -hmm. Any, anything you'd like to share with our audience here about some of the key takeaways for underserved communities? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, well, one, I, I, I think uh, these concepts, these pain, stress, and addiction are even more pronounced in underserved communities. I mean, when we think about the things that often uh, create uh, pain, stress, and addiction. I mean, it's often trauma, and and underserved communities uh, have have higher rates of trauma than than the, the you know based on the, the policies that that are set that than often the, the rest of the, the country, and and I mean these trauma may be uh, you know aces you know prior to to 18, but they also could be living trauma currently, like based on, on the conditions that they live in as well, and so I think it's really inf important to have a trauma informed viewpoint. Uh, whenever you are uh, working with underserved patients. Um, I think that, um, you know, what we've found with our patients, uh, and, and just one more thing about trauma. So we, we've talked about ACEs, right? And most people know ACEs as uh, adverse childhood experiences. But there's actually a model that I believe it's Wendy Ellis out of, uh, I think in DC somewhere, uh, but basically it's called the pair of ACEs models. So the first is the adverse childhood experiences. But what we re recognize is that those experiences don't exist in a vacuum. That there's actually, if you look broader, it's the adverse community environments that actually leads to these adverse childhood experiences. So, so you may have multiple people who have ACEs, and, 
And it, I think it, it's easy to put that as, as this is an individual issue, but really if it's a larger, broader community issue where trauma is happening because of you know, uh, where the communities that people live in and these larger social determinants, then I think you, you, you get a, broad, a, a better picture of like how this actually impacts the, the, the larger community. And so, so I think we have to kind of really be thinking about that and thinking about how the policies that are creating trauma in our communities. Now that's a really difficult thing to address and that's, that, you know, that's a whole other story. But in terms of what we've done in our clinic around pain, um, what we have realized is that we have to take a broader integrative approach to pain. It can't just be one provider trying to work with this. And so we've worked, we work in teams. Uh, partly that's because I, I don't get an hour with the patient to be able to sit down. I have 15 minutes. So, so what we've been able to do is, is work with, we have a really robust behavioral health department that works in a very trauma-informed manner. We have a nutritionist. We do like cooking classes. We have a teaching kitchen in our clinic. Um, we, have, we actually brought in a substance abuse counselor. Uh, there's actually a lot of federal money right now coming to FQHCs to kind of work on the opioid epidemic. And part of that is hiring substance use count, uh, uh, disorder counselors. So we have one in our clinic. Um, we uh, have been able to incorporate uh, acupuncture through a partnership with uh, a local Chinese medicine school. We're going to be bringing in yoga therapy and massage therapy into our clinic. Um, we have a medical legal attorney. We actually have three attorneys on our staff. And that's been the most profound thing for me because in terms of thinking about these social needs that patients have, you know, a lot of our patients, in, I mean, Texas has the highest uninsured rate in the country. And so a lot of our patients who have chronic pain could qualify for disability and be able to get on some sort of insurance coverage. But, you know, if they've had a disability claim uh, that was denied, you know, it's a really complicated process. So our attorney gets involved and is able to get them on disability, which gives them a, a, a set income, which then gives them access to specialists because they now have insurance. You know, so not only that, if you think about like tenants' rights issues or uh, any of these other sort of bigger legal issues that can create stress, like if you can address some of those things, that can significantly lower the stress level of a patient and allow them to, to, to really focus on some of the more important uh, other, other important pieces around uh, addressing their pain. So, so we, we have this team that works together. We have case conferences every week that uh, address like complex patients and we're just learning from each other, which is, which is like the most amazing thing. Like I've learned so much from our lawyer, from our nutritionist, from all these people. Uh, and then we, we, we do this with group visits. And so, um, so we basically uh, have groups uh, which are, um, you know, we incorporate a, a, a cooking and nutrition element there. We, we do some sort of mind-body activity. We uh, incorporate some sort of movement. And then the most important part of the groups is the connection, the connection between patients, the peer education that's happening. The fact that patients are saying that, you know, I used to think I was alone in this, but I realize now that there are other people doing this. And so, so you know, we, we've tried to create a more comprehensive program to be able to, to work on these issues around, around pain, stress, and addiction because, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a complex issue and you need, you know, a whole health perspective on this. And we have heard here at the annual conference the power of loneliness and isolation yeah. in terms of yes. driving poor health outcomes. Right, right. and even so, more pronounced in underserved populations Even as well. more pronounced. Love the idea of... Uh, thinking of a collaborative care team, including legal counsel or mm -hmm. a lawyer, that mm -hmm. just that really makes me feel good about a, mm -hmm. a direction we we would want to go, especially in yeah. underserved communities. Yeah. Love that idea. Um, <clears throat> when some of our clinicians find out that I spent 26 years in 
community health centers uh, in, in my clinical practice before working with IFM, uh, they always ask me, how did you work with that 15-minute visit? Yeah. So you mentioned the 15-minute visit that you have. Right. How do you incorporate the functional medicine clinical approach, uh, which cannot be done in 15 minutes, the entire right. thing? So how about some practical tips for our audience yeah. of how you work with 15-minute yeah. appointments and still get the ATMs and right. the timeline and the matrix? And Yeah, I mean, I, I, in my mind, it's, it's, it, I think there's, there's the concept of functional medicine, of integrated medicine, is what's more important to me. Like, just being able to think more about root causes and think broader about health. And so even if I may not be able to address all those things individually, as we were discussing around the team, I use a team. So, so I, we have health educators or nutritionists or behavioral health or uh, you know, other people who can kind of help with that. I mean, when I was at my uh, community clinic in California, we really um, utilized our health educators to kind of go, essentially go through all those things within that matrix uh, because I didn't have the time to do it. So they would come in, they would, they would basically present all of that to me about sleep and stress and uh, food and all these factors, and then I'd be able to sort of uh, make some decisions based on that. Um, but it is, you know, I mean, I, I think in sort of th practices like FQHCs where you're not going to get an hour, I mean, there's just like no way anyone's going to say, you sure you can have an hour, hour and a half per patient. Um, you have to really think about how do, we, how do we just utilize the resources that we have. And I think the beauty of community health centers is that generally, like, I think they're ahead of private practices in a lot of ways because we've, you know, part of our requirements are that we have to have somewhat of an integrated team. You have to have behavioral health and dentistry and, and a few other uh, wraparound services already. And so it's not that difficult to sort of say, hey, what if we added in you know, more nutrition? Or what if we just brought in an acupuncture somehow? Uh, you know, like, like you, you can kind of way, figure out ways to sort of expand these, uh, your, your care team. Uh, and, and especially since there is this movement towards care teams, uh, to be able to like, address all of the issues that we, we think are important in terms of people having uh, optimal health and well-being. Another concern of our clinicians is with colleagues' acceptance of yeah. functional medicine, integrative medicine. Are there any aspects of that unique to the underserved setting in your experience that you could speak to? Um, I think, I mean, I think it, it all comes down, I mean, there are always going to be clinicians who are skeptical, no matter whether you're in a private practice or in an underserved setting, right? So, so the question is, you know, how do you, how do you convince them that, that, they're, that this is actually not just like some, you know, you know, crazy medicine or whatever? And I mean, it's data. It's like for, for people, especially, in, I think data and cost savings are important, especially when talking to administrators, right? So, so, so showing people like, hey, this is what... We, uh, this is the data we have on these particular concepts. This is uh, how much money it's saved in, in, in settings like our own. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that we try to do at IAM for us is that we have um, a lot of presentations that, that really demonstrate like, different studies that are happening in underserved settings because uh, I think a lot of the data that's happened up till now has not been on our patient population, but we're starting to see growing evidence now on, on some of these concepts in underserved settings. Uh, and, and I think you, you know, being able to present that data is important, be able to present some of the cost, uh, uh, cost effectiveness data as well is important. Um, but you know, one of the things that was great to me is like uh, at, at this last IAM First conference that we had in DC, 
Um, three people presented from the Erie Family Health Center in Chicago. And they had come a couple times to Iron for us back in the day, and I think uh, one of them had like got really into it and was just like, okay, we're gonna start doing this stuff. And so they, they went to their administration, they figured out ways to kind of get it done, and they came back and they presented on like how they were able to sell it to their administration. And so like they came back years later and they're like, hey, we learned about these concepts like eight years ago, and now here we are like presenting this or whatever. And, and it was just like, that was like why we kind of created that conference to begin with, because we want people to be able to share best practices around how we're doing this in, in under-resourced settings. And it is wonderful that you mentioned I Am For Us, because that was my next question. Mm -hmm. Is there, We have some in the audience who are not familiar with mm -hmm. I Am For Us, and IFM and I Am For Us have been collaborating for yeah. several years now. Yeah, great partnership. So why don't you explain to our audience, what is I Am For Us, and yeah. what's the mission, and yeah. how might they get involved? Sure, so Integrated Medicine for the Underserved, or I Am For Us, is uh, it's a multidisciplinary collaborative organization that focuses on um, making integrative health accessible to all. And uh, it was founded in 2009, so we're in our 10th year now, um, by a small group of family medicine doctors at the Society for Teachers for Family Medicine. It was just like an interest group that kind of was formed on the side as a way of like trying to figure out how to better care for our patients. And, um, you know, uh, it initially started with like some phone calls, uh, like conference calls to say, hey, let's talk about headaches this week and coming up with some different sort of integrated concepts around headaches. Um, but then um, the following year, I got involved in 2010 and partly it was because um, I had gone to uh, another, like a, a large integrative medicine conference and, and realized that like what was, I was learning there wasn't accessible to, to, to my patients. And it wasn't really like, like, I was like, well, I do integrative health myself, like in our practice, but I'm not really sure, like, yeah, I, this isn't really representative of what I do. And there was like a small table of people in community health centers who were in the back. And we we're all like, yeah, we agree with this. And so I started talking to this one other uh, physician, uh, Connie Earl, who was doing her uh, integrative medicine fellowship at the Santa Rosa Family Health Center. And so we were just sitting there like, we should just have our own conference. And you were like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And it was more of a joke at that point. But then about three months later, we were just like, hey, do you want to have that conference? And, and she's like, yeah, I know all these people. And so she knew a lot of the people who were some of the original founders of I Am For Us, who were from that meeting. And then I had people in my clinic, and we decided, let's, uh, let's get together and just have this conference. And so we just threw, threw together a one-day conference, at, uh, just like a big DIY type thing. Like, you know, just we, we were putting all the meals together, assembling the stage, doing all this stuff. And we thought we'd just draw like 30, 40 of our friends to it. Uh, we had 125 people show up. We couldn't actually fit more people because of the, the, the fire code. And so what we started real, and it wasn't just MDs and DOs, it was we had naturopaths, we had herbalists, we had other people who, who were working with the underserved who were like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this work. And I didn't realize other people were doing this work as well. And so we just realized that we had, uh, there's this like, there's just this sea of people out there. And so we decided to expand it. And so in the next few years, we basically created larger conferences, uh, pre-conferences, um, and, and it's just sort of just grown. And so uh, we've ended up forming, a, a, you know, becoming a formal organization, board of directors. Uh, and, um, and as we were growing, you know, initially our goal was to sort of focus on uh, the individual patients that we worked with. But as we started doing that, we started realizing, okay, well, but there, there are these other issues of equity and of policy that are at play that are creating these factors 
these like essentially tying back into what we were talking about earlier around social determinants that that are preventing our patients from being healthy. So we need to sort of look into those realms. And so our our work has really expanded in in terms of creating an equity committee uh, that's creating an equity, diversity, and inclusivity framework that is uh, now uh, we're going to be putting on our website for for people to be able to kind of learn and think about how they can do this within their organizations. And then really focusing on policy and creating a policy committee. We connected in with the Integrative Health Policy Consortium to really think about uh, how can we impact things on a policy level. Uh, last year we had our first congressional briefing on uh, non-drug approaches to pain in underserved populations. And so we were in DC for that. And so, so we, we have sort of expanded and are really starting to look in, in different realms. Uh, and um, you know, we, we encourage people to join. Uh, if you're working with the underserved and really want to connect to a, a, a group of people who are really passionate and committed about this, yeah, I mean, you can go to our website and, and uh, join. We have an annual conference every year. So our conference is coming up in August in, uh, in the Bay Area. And one other question then would be uh, for our audience, if I join I Am For Us, mm -hmm. what other resources do I have available? You mentioned yeah. a, a growing database, perhaps, or yeah. other t clinical tools, perhaps. So we have, uh, I mean, we have our annual conference, and there's some uh, discounts around the conference in terms of becoming a member. Uh, we have a toolkit as well. Uh, and so the toolkit initially was resources that were just uploaded from our community. And so, um, so these are, if you had low literacy handouts in, uh, over on a particular topic, those get uploaded in. And uh, if you had curriculum on group visits for chronic pain in underserved set settings, those can get uploaded on there. So our toolkit um, is, is, is there. Um, now we have you know, uh, a growing advocacy network. We have our, our policy committee that, that oh, we have a lot of people joining on. We're, we're writing letters. Uh, you know, we, we recently there was the HHS task force on best practices for pain, and so I am for us. Uh, our policy committee wrote a letter and submitted that to sort of provide public comment. Uh, and um, we, so we're we're trying to get involved in, in in these different areas, and I think people can get as act, be as active as they want in the in these realms. There. Great. What final message would you like to give to our our audience of clinicians out there who are interested or already working with the underserved? Uh, first, great. <laughs> Good for you. I think that's it's. it's I mean, it's it's hard work, but um, you know, I think around thinking about these principles of functional medicine around integrative health. I mean, I mean, this is how. We, I mean, these are the tools that are actually going to lead to health equity, and I think that um, you know that that's why I, I do this. I mean, it's funny. People have asked me, "Are you a functional medicine practitioner? Are you an integrative health practitioner?" And like, what, what do you believe? I'm like, well, no, I believe in health equity, but I think these are the best tools for it. You know? And so this is why I've like learned these tools, because I think that if we are working on addressing all factors that influence their health, which may be on an individual level in terms of building resiliency, but even moving into the community level uh, around you know, addressing social needs, and even then looking at policy level, I mean, these are all integrated health concepts. We have to look at all those factors to be able to truly uh, you know, get us to the point where we can have health as a nation. And so I think uh, anyone who's doing this work, it's, it's fantastic. Keep it up. I know it's sometimes hard, but there are resources out there. I think I Am For Us can be a resource for people. I think I, I, I hope that I am, I, IFM and I Am For Us can continue to have this partnership because I think, um, you know, we, we, we both uh, learn from each other and can really share a lot of tools. Dr. Sherrod Coley, thank you so much. A tour de force, an enlightening conversation. Glad to have you back anytime. Yeah. And we, we look forward to working in the future with you. Great. Thanks for so having thanks me. Thanks very much. Yeah.